0: Hey community, welcome to our sermon podcast for wanderers, seekers, and thinkers, for deconstructing and reconstructing. This is a feed of Open Door Church, a faith community focused on God's love and grace, a progressive church built around action, community, and people. Enjoy this week's message and check back often as we're posting new content every week. We started Romans last week and sort of the week before, but we just sort of had a conversation that week. Uh, Romans is, and here's the deal, I'm going to tell you this every single week that we do this because Romans is one of those books of the Bible, letters, whatever you want to do, that has not gone over so well for a lot of us and produces a, a, a bit of anxiety has been used in very negative ways, in very controlling ways, in very manipulative ways, and and so to one, I was not interested in doing this at all. Just to be upfront and open, uh, because it's very dense. It's been traditionally interpreted very negatively, and it's been used. Uh, it's been used as a very harmful. Texts in the Bible to many people that uh, in the church, and so so I wasn't super excited about this. However, our goal here, our purpose here, is to take Romans and words of Paul and see if we can uh, build something and bring something out of it that is valuable, and that is purposeful, and that is meaningful. And one of the things that we did last week was we began to undo and unwind some of the poor interpretations and some of the poor historical interpretations of of the letter that have caused uh, a lot of problems. And we're going to continue that uh, this week. So Paul is writing to a group of Christians in Rome that are really kind of all over the place. And they're in a culture, they're in a society, in a structure that is primarily about status. And in fact, a huge portion of the letter is about status. So we've talked a little bit about the origins of the letter and what he's doing. Uh, For one thing he wants to do, he wants to identify himself to a group of uh, Roman churches so that they know him and so that he can come there and stay with them and use Rome as a hub to go from Rome into uh, other areas to share the gospel. But it's significant that he he is writing a letter to people that he doesn't know, to many of them that he doesn't know and that don't know him. And it's significant that he needs money from them. Right? He needs their support so that he can Go into Spain. So we worked, we did this last week. We started with, how do we do this? Right? We started with Asia. Paul does all his work over here. And then he writes to Rome and he says, I, and he begins his letter this way I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. And he's very, uh, he's very nice about this. He says, uh, so, so Asia, Rome, and then he wants to use Rome to come all the way over here to Spain, like my dad did with his maps in the car all the way over to Spain to, to preach and share and to, and to circulate the good news. So it's important to recognize that, one, this is not a theological treatise that he's writing. This is not a general letter to all the churches for all time. This is a specific letter with a lot of theological content written for a specific time, a specific place, and a specific church for a reason— and one of those reasons is to get funding to go from there into Spain. That's important. The second thing that's important is that he's writing to a divided church. And this I find is fascinating. Some commentators or scholars will actually talk about Paul's primary concern being, you ready for this, denominations. Paul's writing to a group of Christians that are big. Be- Beginning to faction and create, essentially, denominations. Some that are concerned about this thing, some that are concerned about that thing. And Paul writes this letter to bring them together and to, to speak of unity within the church, which is fascinating for us, a non-denominational church, right? I'll say that. It's okay. I find that fascinating that his, one of his primary concerns is that we are dividing and dividing Throughout his text, from from the first line to the last, this is one of his primary concerns. And even when he digs into other theological content, he is doing it within the context of a divided church. So let's talk about what kind of divisions there are. First of all, it is interesting that all of the divisions, well, both, we're going to talk about two, the two divisions... Both sides are claiming privilege. So Scott McKnight, uh, who wrote this fantastic book on Romans, says, the Romans as a whole is about power and privilege. And so we're going to, which, who knew that the text that we were using for all of these centuries was, it, we were using to marginalize and oppress and create hierarchy is actually about Undoing power and privilege. That's really interesting. Anyway, he says it's about power and privilege. Both groups are claiming privilege in this conversation. So you have, uh, you have a Jewish Christian community that was essentially expelled from the city and have begun returning. When they are expelled, they sort of lose their status in the community of churches, so they're kicked out. They go to other places. This is how Paul knows some of them. So in chapter, in chapter 16, he's naming people that he does know. We think these are Jewish Christians that were in Rome, that were expelled, that he then meets in Corinth and other places. Um, so uh, verse 3, Greek, Prisca, and Aquila, Jewish names. Uh, Greek also, we go on, Andronicus and Junia. Jewish names, there are a few names, most of them are Gentile names, but there are a few names throughout his letter that are Jewish names that he knows personally, and that he has crossed paths with. So he knows some, but the significance of that is that they lost their status, have returned, but still claim what kind of privilege? We claim this privilege sometimes, election. So remember how like Everything in our Bible tells us from like beginning to end about an elected people that God has chosen that are here to save and rescue and, and be rescued by God. The Jewish Christians claim that heritage. Now, think about it this way. If you are a Jewish and you are a follower of Jesus and he is the Messiah and you have claimed this heritage through your entire life and have read through this history, throughout all of history, you see God working for this chosen elect people, and that's you, and then Jesus comes along, and Jesus is the the ultimate piece to that puzzle, and you're still claiming that, you would claim some privilege in that conversation. But they've lost their status. And in the meantime, in those six five to six years when they were expelled from the city, what happens is that uh, Nero comes to power after, and, uh, and Nero sort of forgets about this proclamation that sent all the Jewish Christians or Jewish people on account of Christus out of the city, and they return, but there are now some divisions in the church. So let's talk about status as it relates to the Gentile Christians. First, these Jewish churches and Christians have been gone. They've been out of the picture for the last six years. And in the meantime, these Gentile Christians who were new to the whole thing and everything like that have begun to take ownership of the church and who they are and what they're doing. And they claim a different kind of privilege. They are actually citizens and claim a social status within the Roman system. So we have privilege and we have privilege and we have power and we have no power because Jewish Christians are on the outside of the social and political structures of the time and have no power. So Paul writes, let's start in chapter 14 for a little bit. We're working backwards, not completely, but partially backwards. I don't know when you can call somebody weak and it be a compliment, but there's, there's some sort of claim in this process that, that Paul isn't necessarily being condescending, but it's really hard to read it this way. He starts off, Welcome those who are weak in faith. That's a command. Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything, while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat meat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they all stand or fall, and they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Let's unpack this really quick. There's a solid argument that the weak is a reference to Jewish Christians. That's all part of Open Door. There's a strong argument that the weak here is a reference to Jewish Christians. So, what's happening? Welcome those who are weak in faith. To the Gentile Christians, he writes, welcome those who are weak in faith, but not for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Some believe in eating anything, those are the Gentiles, while the weak eat only vegetables. Here's the concern. Meat in Rome is difficult to come by. That's not gone through the pagan system of gods, so there's not a access to kosher meat. How could we can we can do that? And so, mo- the meat that you buy at the market has been offered up to a god, has then been taken from that place and put on the markets, and so. In a way, if you are a Jewish Christian, you look at meat that's been offered to another god and you cannot partake in that. The Gentile Christians who have grown up with this their entire life don't have any reference point for saying, oh, this meat isn't good for us to eat. It's just the meat that they have access to. So when he writes, some believe in eating anything, while the weak eat only vegetables, his statement is, for religious purposes, excuse me, for religious purposes, the weak or the Jewish Christians are choosing not to eat any meat because maybe in the process they violate the law. And so Paul says, we have to welcome them anyway. And he goes on to write, Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall. Now, what Paul is going to tell us is that he's like, he's going to identify as one of the strong, even though he's Jewish, he's also a citizen, but he is working this out for himself and he's saying, I think you can eat anything and it's totally fine. But if we're going to quarrel over this, we're going to create divisions in the church. This is fascinating. This is a key theological moment in the early church. And Paul says, if you think you shouldn't eat meat, don't eat meat. If you think you are just fine eating meat, then eat your meat and enjoy it. But don't judge this one. And you who are judging this one, you see what we're doing here? He's like, just let it go. It's not relevant. We spend so much time focused on, does this theology matter? Does this piece of doctrine matter? Do, do, do we need to, to draw a line in the sand and say you're either in or you're out based on this? And Paul says, let it go. If it's a problem for you, don't eat it. If it's not a problem for you, let them not eat it. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister or you? Who, who do you despise, your brother or your sister? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each of us will be accountable to God. The process of denominations, not to get on a high horse because we're non-denominational, because we're Honestly, it's not any better. It just means we can't get along with anyone else. <laughs> the whole idea of the denomination here, or the divisions in the church based on, based on our theology, Paul says, forget it. It is far more important that we find unity and that we show and live a different life. System than the one that's around us. Here's what's interesting about this in context, okay? In context, Paul is setting a different vision for the way the world works. So the system of honor from which he writes, the the social status of people, and so we talked about the Jewish and the Gentile, but... The Roman world is all about status. It is completely hierarchical, and it is completely based on your honor. And your honor is, is built on your power, your wealth, your control and your ability to convince others that you have honor. If you are a, not a citizen, you are a slave. Or you are a freed person, that is a slave that has won or paid for their freedom, can go and work and survive and do just fine. Any of those people, however, no honor at all. You can be a freed slave that makes lots of money, no honor, no status, no power. You can have more power, more control as a slave that works for a powerful person than as a freed slave that makes lots of money. It's kind of strange. But there is a hierarchy in place. There is a structure and a system that is built. What would you say our system is built on? We look out and we go, we have a system of something, Status. What is that built on? Money Money and influence. Yeah. Anyone? That kind of does it, right? It's, It's pretty much it. If you have money, you have influence. If you have power, it probably comes from your money and your influence. Paul is writing about a system that levels the playing field. For him to tell the Jewish Christians the weak that you don't have the privilege you think you have, he undoes the religious systems and structures that they expect to be in place. He turns around and tells the Gentile Christians, you don't have the societal and status of privilege in the church that you think you have because we are all one. He writes a new leaf in the book on how the world functions, completely undoes the system in place that they are told we all operate within a system of money and influence. So we can look at that and take the same direct line and go, well, what does the church look like? What kind of system can we live by that undoes a status of money and wealth in our own society? He goes on, "'Let us therefore no longer pass judgment on one another, but resolve instead to never put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of another. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself.'" but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. That word in Greek is the same word that's used for common. So he's doing a bit of a play on words that that has them thinking about things that are common and uncommon and clean and unclean. If your brother or sister is being injured by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Do not let what you eat cause the ruin of Of the one for whom Christ died, Paul is undoing the expectations of both religious, theology, doctrine, and social status. Now, let's talk about the bigger picture. We're doing a little bit of that, but let's talk about the bigger picture. In chapter 15, he continues We who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. But remember, we have Jewish, weak, Gentile, strong, and there is an ethnic component to this story now, now that we've undone some of the, recognized some of the honor pieces. So the NRSV, which I almost never deviate from because I like it and I trust it, has used the language of strong and weak because Paul's using it all the way throughout the letter. But here's what's fascinating. The same words for strong and weak are This words we would use for powerful and not powerful. So the CEB, forgive me one second, translates it this way. We who are powerful need to be patient with the weakness of those who don't have power. We who are powerful need to be patient with the weakness of those who don't have power. When heard in that light and with words that we can better associate with the uh, power structures and dynamics that are going on, we see what's underlying Paul's letter and it is far larger than simply strong and weak Jewish, Gentile, and theological debates. He's writing About God's vision for the world that doesn't include hierarchy. God's vision for the world that tells us we are all one, that we are all loved by God, that God cares for each of us, and in the process that we find harmony and peace not through structure and hierarchy and business models and capitalism, but through unity and oneness and equality. That's a huge statement in the Roman world. God's good news eradicates this notion of power and empire. Uh, these two that wrote another, another book, uh, Kismat and Walsh, write on Romans in terms of power and empire. And they write, when you look at chapter 1, verse 1, Paul launches into this story by already indicating that he's going to overturn systems and status and structure and privilege and status quo. He says, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Three interesting things. Remember our honor system of honor and structure? At the top, Citizens with wealth and power, less wealth and power, less wealth and power, freed slaves, slaves at the bottom. Paul identifies who is a citizen of Rome and can claim privilege and power within the system. Paul opens his letter by claiming his status as a slave, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Keeps Matt and Walsh dig into the word gospel. Most frequently in the ancient world, gospel is used as, well, the term we will sometimes could say good news or, or gospel or something like that, right? But the good news is most frequently used in the ancient world as the good news of the emperor or king or person in power having won a victory in battle. This is a politically charged word And Paul says, not the gospel of Caesar, not the gospel of Nero, the gospel of God. Overturning the system and the structure that's in place. One more piece of this story that I want to look at. Okay, you with me? Had no stories today. My apologies. Maybe next time. Okay, we're going to look at Psalms 10. Okay, That seems like a strange place to go, but this might be my like, new favorite passage in the whole Bible. Paul quotes Psalms like half a dozen times in this short letter. One of those quotes is from Psalms 10. Uh, it's in chapter 3, and he has a whole list of quotes. It's in this list of uh, chapter 3, verse 10 and following. There's no one who's righteous, not even one. There's no one who has understanding. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. Their throats are opened graves. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. But our translation fails us just a little bit because when Psalms 10 references they and their mouths. And for a Jewish audience, this is a no-brainer. They follow this. We don't follow this. We have to have some scholar that studied all this to figure it out for us. But here's chapter, or, uh, Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked persecute the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. For the wicked boast of their desires of their heart. Those greedy for gain curse and renounce the Lord. In the pride of their countenance, the wicked say, God will not seek it out. All their thoughts are there is no God. Their ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of their sight. As for their foes, they scoff at them. They think in their heart. We shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, we shall not meet adversity. Their mouths are filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. The psalmist here is calling out... Why this isn't more in our churches, I don't know. The psalmist here is calling out privilege and power and wealth that prey on poverty and lack of power and lack of honor. When Paul references Psalms 10 and asks us to envision a world in which the privilege is brought down and those on the margins are lifted up, he's calling on a new structure for all of society. This is extremely dangerous politically we don't even have to change words to make this make sense to us for us to look out and hear things in our world about power and privilege and and the quote of we shall not be moved throughout all generations we shall not meet adversity I could stand in the middle of Times Square and shoot somebody and get away with it. Power and privilege is the structure of our society and Paul is offering us a vision from God that sees the world completely differently. Where we work as one, where we live in harmony, where we lift those up that need lifting up. And bring down those that need to be brought down. That's the vision that Paul has in Romans 14 and 15. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Open Door Church. Our intro and outro music was created by Lee Rosevere and is used under a Creative Commons by attribution license. Have a great week. Ask the hard questions and explore God's love. Everyone is always welcome to join the journey with us at Open Door. Learn more at opendoorfamily.ca That's opendoorfamily.ca